0: And once you realize that the evidence that dietary fat is, or saturated fat is causing disease is shoddy at best, it opens up a whole new world of ways to think about obesity. Because one of the things that happened is in the, until the 1960s, the belief was that carbohydrates were fattening. Bread, pasta, potatoes, sweets just made you fat. If you didn't want to be fat, you didn't eat them. And then we decided that dietary fat and saturated fat cause heart disease, and, and carbs became heart-healthy diet foods, and suddenly they were the foods we were supposed to eat. And then there were diets like Atkins, which just said, don't eat carbs, you can eat as much fat as you want. And those worked tremendously for weight loss, but people just assumed they'd kill you because of the saturated fat.
1: This is episode number 93 with Gary Taubes. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Julie Fouché, family medicine resident and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring to you information and inspiration from experts and everyday individuals for how to use lifestyle to maximize health. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, let's get started with this week's episode. Well, hello there, and welcome back to Pursuing Health. In this episode, I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with investigative science and health journalist Gary Taubes just after the 2018 CrossFit Health Conference in Madison, Wisconsin. With a background in physics and a special interest in investigating so-called bad science, Gary turned his attention toward nutrition in the early 2000s. He has since spent the past 15 plus years authoring several books on the topic, including The Case Against Sugar, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It, and Good Calories, Bad Calories. He's also a contributor to publications such as The New York Times and The Wall Street Journal, and he's won numerous awards for his journalism. Gary is also the co founder of the nonprofit Nutrition Science Initiative. Gary is well known for sorting through the myths surrounding nutrition and how faulty research and public health recommendations have led to poor food choices and the obesity epidemic over the past several decades. In this episode, we talked about everything from investigating bad science, how our understanding of nutrition and obesity has evolved over the past 15 plus years, and the importance of self-experimentation when it comes to finding the optimal diet for your body. A few quick reminders before we get started. First, this episode is produced by CrossFit Beyond the Whiteboard, the best workout tracking in the biz and the one I've been using since 2009. Learn more at beyondthewhiteboard.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please head over to iTunes to subscribe and consider giving it a rating. I'm always looking for inspiring stories to share. So if you or someone you know has used lifestyle to overcome a serious health challenge, please send your story to me at info at com, and I'll select some to share here on future episodes. Finally, please remember that although I am now officially a doctor, this podcast is meant to share the experiences of individuals and does not provide medical advice. With that, let's get started with episode number 93 of Pursuing Health featuring Gary Taubes. Thank you so much for joining me on Pursuing Health. I'm really excited to be here with Gary Taubes, so. Well, My pleasure, thanks <laughs> for having me. And we're here, it's just been the second day of the CrossFit Health Conference. Um, what is it like for you to be here in the CrossFit community and interacting with some of the attendees here in the in the world of CrossFit.
0: Uh, first, I feel physically inadequate. <laughs> um, other than that, uh, no, it's I mean it's fascinating. CrossFit has been supporters of mine from you know. The, I, I actually before I was aware that mm-hmm. they were supporters of mine mm-hmm. and the uh you know so and then now that with CrossFit Health and the physicians involved it's kind of a wonderful opportunity to interact with these people but also mm-hmm. to get feedback to them and just you know finding out that I've had an influence is something that never gets tiring yeah. um so and getting their insights has been valuable so it's, it's been a fascinating couple of days I wish I could stay longer
1: that's good to hear, and it's interesting. The first time I think I had ever heard of your work was back in two thousand eleven when you spoke for the CrossFit trainers um, at their trainer summit, and then they posted it in the CrossFit Journal. And that's when I was in my first year of I was just starting medical school, first year of medical school, and heard your talk, and then you know got your book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, and then obviously, along the way, have followed your work. and So
0: how do you navigate medical school with this sort of, uh, you know, uh, unorthodox, uh, heretical message that I'm giving? I mean, for the most part, I would think that would be a little bit difficult.
1: It's very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I still don't know if I have a good answer or a good approach to it, but... Um, it's hard because a lot of times you feel like you don't really know what you can believe that you're learning, um, and especially, you know, we can get into some of what you talked about yesterday. But looking at the science and the research and the things that our guidelines are based off of are the things that we're learning in general in medicine. A lot of times, it doesn't have great evidence, or it's not. We don't have. We can't go back to the primary evidence for every single recommendation we make and so a lot of what we learn in medicine is just well this is the way we do it and it's very frustrating to go through um, your process of learning in that kind of environment where you feel like there's no stable foundation for, for what you're learning or what you're doing so at mm-hmm. times it can get very difficult I can imagine
0: <laughs> I mean, I think the key is probably to just remember that just because you've been told to do it this way that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that that God told the um right. people put together the protocol to do it that way. That right. And uh the talk we just heard from Tom you know Tom C. Fried right suggests, as does my work, that people can get trapped into thinking about disease states and in and, and sort of the wrong paradigm. And uh once you do that everything mm-hmm. everything you do sort of support some aspect of what you believe, but not the critical aspects. And you forget that this is just one way of looking Mm -hmm. at the disease and that there might be other ways of approaching it that are much more, answer more questions and have much more effective means of prevention and treatment.
1: Right. And I think in general, just kind of growing up in the system and, and even being exposed to CrossFit as early as I did, it allowed me to go into things with more of an open mind and to ask those questions and ask why and even hearing I think one of the things that gave me the biggest hope was it was during my second or third year of medical school learning about functional medicine and this is again a big paradigm shift for how do we think about disease and medicine and that gives me a lot of it just gives you a lot of hope to see see things like Dr. Seafried is doing and see that there are there are a lot of people looking at problems in different ways and you don't have to just look at it the one way that's the conventional way
0: although you always have to be think critically right and skeptically right um, because you know i have this unique background because i did books on scientists who got the wrong answers and nobel laureates who got the wrong Mm -hmm. answers then i did books on you know so i saw yeah. The, most, most of the people who challenge the establishment and do things in unorthodox ways are wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and in medicine, you've got some good things, some advantages and disadvantages. So advantages, if you've got a person with symptoms and you can cure the symptoms um, of the disease or the disorder, mm-hmm. then you don't really care <laughs> what the conventional right, advice is. Right. If they feel is. better, yeah. Yeah. If they, you, know, you can measure the improvements. Um, all too often that isn't the case where now, you know, we live in a world where we take pharmaceuticals to prevent mm-hmm. diseases and we don't even know really ultimately if they help or hinder. We're just based, we have a hypothesis and a statistical probability that if we do, if we take drug X, we won't. Right be less likely to get a heart attack or right. uh, a stroke. And so you do have this advantage, but then you also have desperate people. And when you have desperate people, you have people who are willing to do anything, and people who are willing to do anything can be taken advantage of. And so you right. have people who will take advantage of them. And then the... How do you know whether you're with them? Right. And how do you know whether... I mean, it's funny because I have people that, you know, sort of designated... Tabs credit they see their life part of their small job in life is right. to make sure nobody should ever be fooled by me mm-hmm. and then i have how does that feel by the way it's weird <laughs> i mean it's just weird yeah uh, and it's weird i don't know if i said that um <laughs> and then you have these people who from their perspective have been fooled by me mm-hmm. and are you know 100 pounds lighter and their diabetes has gone away and it's right. sort of, you know Who's you've got all these you've got companies right. that have started to treat diabetes based on my foolish thinking and are succeeding and so you mm-hmm. you know you it's th- th- i find these people compelling but i guess the world is full of quacks who think that they have actually made people healthier but didn't because some people get healthier on their own mm-hmm um so it's a difficult try you know i don't just cuz i go to brazil and i meet a few hundred people who have, well, maybe I killed a few thousand people in Brazil who adopted low-carb, high-fat yeah. diets and just didn't go to the conference because they're dead. You just don't know. <laughs> you never know. So you right? have to be this, in my talk, when I quote yeah. Richard Feynman, the physicist saying the first principle is you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. You've always got to remember that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always okay. just this high likelihood that somehow just like gazillion people before you you're fooling yourself
1: right you never know anything for sure i think um you mentioned a little bit about your early work in looking at physicists Uh and maybe can you give us just for people listening who aren't so familiar with your path or your work how did you get into maybe even how you got into studying physics in the first place and then to journalism and and that Okay, so Those I was really a, a
0: uh, yeah. I grew up reading science fiction books. So okay. I wanted to be an astronaut. <sighs> Everybody in the '60s we wanted to be astronauts. Today <laughs> you want to be billionaires, but in the '60s we wanted to be astronauts. Okay. Um, the uh, so yeah so I figure if you want to be an astronaut you study astronomy and uh, to study astronomy you have to study physics and I ended up getting a physics degree. I actually got a C- in quantum physics my junior year and my advisor suggested that I find a different career path but okay. by that time I had already enough credits to get a degree in physics. Um, it was clear that I was not going to become a good physicist. <laughs> So, yeah, so then I I got a master's in engineering and decided, just because I wanted to stay in college, and then I had read All the President's Men about, mm-hmm. uh, by Woodward and Bernstein about leading up to the impeachment of Richard Nixon, and I just, that was what I wanted to do in life. And so I applied to journalism school and I got accepted, and when I got out of journalism school, I wanted to become an investigative reporter, but turns out that since I hadn't worked on my high school newspaper, my college newspaper, mm. my graduate school <laughs> newspaper, I didn't really have great credentials, but I had this science background okay. from Ivy League College, so I could get a job as a science writer. I could also stay in New York, where my girlfriend lived, okay. which was, that's
1: important, too. That's important. <laughs> so
0: I became a science writer, um, and a couple of years into doing this, I realized that there's some bad science out there and Mm -hmm. all you have to do is think critically and skeptically Mm -hmm. and you could start asking questions and it doesn't matter whether the guy who said something or wrote up a paper or book has a phd or seventeen letters after their name Mm -hmm. um... you're allowed to ask sort of critical skeptical like something sounds like BS, it might be, whether it's science or not, and so I just did this, and then uh, 1984, I had written a profile on this physicist that everybody knew was going to win the Nobel Prize, Mm -hmm. this uh, Italian physicist named named Carlo Rubio, who taught at Harvard and worked at CERN, which is outside of Geneva, Switzerland, Mm -hmm. and I had done a profile for him for the magazine Discover, and Discover had an award where the scientist of the year, and Carlo had was scientist of the year and he got a nice gold Rolex (laughs) and uh, so he always felt indebted to me (laughs) and he came to Washington and I think it was uh, April 1984 the the annual American Physical Society meeting and he said he was on to the biggest breakthrough in 40 years in physics and it was a brand new, remarkable physics, and this would be even bigger than the stuff that won him the Nobel Prize, and all he had to do was turn on his accelerator and get a little more data, which mm-hmm. they were going to do in September, and nail it down, and I asked if I could come live at the lab and write a book about it, and mm-hmm. it allow me to write a book about a great scientific discovery without actually having to be as smart as the scientists who are making it, because be it's rare that people wall, predict yeah. discoveries. So because of the gold Rolex, he was (coughs) happy to let me come. (laughs) And I got a book deal, and I moved to Geneva, and I got a room at the hostel on the laboratory. And Mm -hmm. today we would say I was was embedded with the physicist. And I was there for a couple months, and it was pretty clear after a couple months that there was something horribly wrong (laughs) with his discovery. And the reason people don't predict discoveries is because if they don't have all the data... They haven't dotted every single I and crossed every single T. Mm -hmm. They don't know if they've made a discovery yet. Mm -hmm. So when somebody says all I have to do is get a little more data to nail it down, they don't know if they're right. They have no idea. They hope they're right. Everybody always hopes they're right, but they have no idea. So I ended up staying there for 10 months while they... The researchers themselves slowly realized how they had screwed up and why they had screwed up. And I was dealing with the theorists at the laboratory, and there was another competitive experiment at the laboratory. And I was traveling around the world talking to other physicists, who it turned out this guy had screwed up numerous times in his past. In fact, the Nobel Prize-winning work was mostly wrong. But it had to be ultimately right, so it was still a safe prize to give. And um, people were happy to explain to me how he had screwed up in the past, yeah. and to talk about just you know I had sit down with Nobel laureates, and they would they, nothing made them happier than to explain how this guy was screwing up now, and why they were better physicists. And so I got this really intensive education yeah. in how to think like some of the best scientists in the world. I wasn't clearly not as smart as they were, but there's a way of thinking yeah. about problems. One of them. <clears throat> Leon Letterman, who was uh, ran the Fermi National Laboratory outside of Chicago and won the Nobel Prize for discovering the epsilon particle. But this mm. is how physicists work. He actually discovered it twice. The first time he had made a mistake, mm-hmm. and people called it the oops-Leon. <laughs> like, even after he won the Nobel Prize, you were allowed to make fun of him <laughs> for screwing up originally. Wow. Leon said he liked to walk around the laboratory at night and talk to the graduate students because they hadn't learned how to lie yet. Hmm. And what I was doing living in Geneva was embedded with these... I wasn't just talking to the Nobel laureate who was kind of a pathological liar. (laughs) I was talking to everyone in the experiment. I was even... You know, I would go to dinner with the technicians. Yeah. I would go to dinner with the red physicists from the Redbrook Colleges in the Midlands of England who had built the equipment. They mm-hmm. weren't allowed to do analysis. They had just built the equipment. They knew how the equipment could fool them. Mm-hmm. And then I would go to dinner and hang out with the young physicists who had come from Harvard to work with Carlo who were like hotshots and just wanted to do analysis. Mm-hmm. And they had no idea how the equipment could fool them because they hadn't built it themselves. And I just, you realize doing this that, you know, when you're reading a paper or hearing a talk, you're getting the head of the project's spin on what they've done. Mm-hmm. And it's so, supposed to be the most negative spin. It's mm-hmm. supposed to be this is all the ways we could have screwed up. We They could have screwed up this. We could have screwed up that. we got to do more work. We mm-hmm. hope... But it's invariably, unfortunately, spun to be more positive than it should be. So this kind of became, when I finished that book, it was called Nobel Dreams. I was just obsessed with this, how hard it is. And when the book came out, it's funny, there was an article in the New York Post about it. and I remember this thinking my career was over. The headline in the New York Post was February 1987, was egghead squabble over Nobel Prize. Mm and in this article this nobel laureate is calling me i'm like 30 years old calling me an asshole <laughs> <clears throat> and i think i'll never work again A great for his book yeah <laughs> And then as I'm doing interviews with scientists, and we start talking about my book and Carla Rubia, and they'll say, oh, if you think Carlo is bad, you should write about so-and-so. Wow,
1: so you realize there's a lot to write about. There's a lot
0: to write about. So basically, my career became doing these investigations on these scientists who just were more ambitious than they were good scientists, and I kept doing it. I moved into public health after my second book when physicists mm-hmm. said, well, if you're interested in bad science, you've got to write about public health. Yeah. That stuff's terrible. And then by the late 1990s, I stumbled into the diet field.
1: Yeah. Tell us about that. How did you end up in I was, nutrition? Uh, and
0: I was living in California, okay. Venice Beach, Um. I was a contributing correspondent for the journal Science, which means I'm a um, glorified freelancer. And I needed a paycheck mm-hmm. to pay my rent. So I called up my editor and I said, Hey, Tim, you know, I need a paycheck. to you have a story I could turn over quickly? Mm-hmm. And the first DASH study had just come out. DASH stands for Dietary Approach to Stop Hypertension, mm-hmm. like the diet rankings from U.S. News and World Report considered DASH the first or second most healthiest diet around. They were publishing this paper in the New England Journal and Dash lowered blood pressure as well as drugs did Mm -hmm. and it didn't restrict salt, which was interesting. So I knew nothing about this. I hadn't written about the field, but the way you, when you get these, when you do these articles, the way it works is you... um, As a journalist, Mm -hmm. they send you the article, it hasn't been published yet. You call up the principal investigator and you interview them, and then you ask them for the names of a few people you could talk to who know Mm -hmm. about the paper even though it hasn't been published yet. Mm -hmm. And then you call them up and they comment. They say it's a great paper, this is why it's unique, and Mm -hmm. it's sort of three interviews, a day's worth of work. You write it up, you get $1,000, you pay your rent.
1: And then the whole country is, this is (coughs) the next best diet that we should all be following.
0: In this case, what I didn't know is the story had been, the paper had been leaked to science. Okay. And the guy who leaked it, provided a list of people to interview. Mm-hmm. So I call up the principal investigator, they, you know, t- mm-hmm. tell me what the study is. Then I call up somebody from the list. And this is a former president of the American Heart Association. Okay. And she says she can't talk about the study or she'll mm-hmm. lose her funding. And I say, okay, what are you talking about? Yeah. Hear, this is not the era Soviet yeah. Union. The NIH doesn't pull your funding because you talk about a diet study in the New England Journal. And she goes, I can't do it. And I go, okay, let's, let's do this. Let's just go off the record on background. Yeah. Because if you don't tell me what's wrong with this study, I'll never know. And then I'm just going to write it up and get my paycheck. Yeah. And 20 years from now, DASH is going to be the healthiest diet in America. And she refuses to talk to me. And then I call up one of these guys who uh, the principal investigator told me to talk to. Mm -hmm. And he says, he starts yelling at me, he sounds exactly like Walter Matthau on the (laughs) telephone. So it's really weird. It's like (laughs) having Walter Matthau yell at you that there's no controversy over salt. There's absolutely none. There's no evidence that salt doesn't raise blood pressure. And I go, wait, 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 professor, I'm not calling about salt. Yeah. I'm calling about the DASH diet study. And he goes, that's good, because there's no controversy over salt and blood pressure. So I get off the phone, I call up my editor, and I say, I had this American Heart Association woman refusing to talk to me because she'll lose her funding. And then I had this other Walter Matthau yelling at me that... There's no controversy over salt and blood pressure. When I wasn't calling about salt, yeah. there must be some controversy over salt and blood pressure that I know nothing about. Yeah, I'm eating a low-salt diet yeah. like everyone else in America. Right. And so I'm going to turn this story over and get my paycheck and pay my rent, and then I'm going to launch into an invest. I'm going to just see whether there's something to the salt blood mm-hmm. pressure. So it turned out that the key with DASH is it lowered blood pressure but didn't restrict salt. Mm-hmm. So that implied that salt wasn't that important. People. And the guy who had leaked it, who since became a friend and ally, leaked it because he had been arguing that salt isn't the determining factor in raising our blood pressure. So that's, I spent nine months on that story. Mm-hmm. Interviewed 85 people, read all the papers. Um, this guy who had Walt, the Walter Matthau character, in the course of interviewing him again, is mm-hmm. clearly one of the worst scientists I'd ever interviewed. Remember I'd spent like, since With 1984. Right. I mean, just terrible scientist. <laughs> and he took credit not just for getting Americans on the low-salt diet, but for getting us to eat the low-fat diet. Mm. So after he did that, I called up my editor and I said, look, when I'm done writing about salt, I'm going to write about fat. <laughs> I have no idea what the story yeah. is. There's but something there. My the experience is, if a bad scientist is involved, he's not going to get the right answer. Mm-hmm. That's sort of if science is too hard. Nature is too difficult to understand. We don't. They don't the easy answers are all gotten 50, 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, so that was it. I finished the salt story. It turned out that the evidence that salt causes hypertension is terrible. Mm-hmm. And it was just a hypothesis and people believed the hypothesis and when the studies didn't agree with them, they found ways to to reject the studies Mm -hmm. and turned out the same for dietary fat. And once you realize that the evidence that dietary fat is or saturated fat is causing disease is shoddy at Mm -hmm. best, it opens up a whole new world of ways to think about obesity because one of the things that happened is in the... Until the 1960s, the belief was that carbohydrates were fat and mm-hmm. bread, pasta, potatoes, sweets just made you fat. If you didn't want to be fat, you didn't eat them. Mm-hmm. And then we decided that dietary fat and saturated fat caused heart disease and, and carbs became heart-healthy diet foods. And suddenly, they were the foods we were supposed to eat. And then there were diets like Atkins, which just said, don't eat carbs. You could eat as much fat as you want. Mm-hmm. And... Those work tremendously for weight loss, but mm-hmm. people just assume they'd kill you because of the saturated fats. Mm-hmm. So and now once I've spent the year of my life, 100 f- interviewed I think 150 or 155 researchers mm-hmm. and administrators who had played some role in this dietary fats. So, I mean, I talked to everyone because yeah. I knew that if I talked to the graduate students, they might not lie to me. Right. <laughs> you know, that you was kind the right of my people. modus operandi. <laughs> Spent that time in um, the labs. Yeah, and then it just went from there, and then suddenly I become one of these people who's saying everything you think you know about nutrition is wrong. Yeah. Including, like, these just basic fundamental beliefs about fat accumulation, that it's like, oh, we eat too much, Mm -hmm. you know.
1: And uh, so is this the time when you wrote that initial New York Times article... Yeah, this is,
0: so I did the science story on fat, which was called the soft science of dietary fat, and then I moved to New York, and uh, this is how things work when you live in New York, and you're a young, relatively young journalist. I had been introduced to an editor at the New York Times Magazine, and it turned Mm -hmm. out we both liked to hang out in the same French cafe in the village on Waverly Place, and so... We would go and have lunch there like once a month and Mm -hmm. bad story ideas back and forth and decided I would do this story eventually on Mm -hmm. what might have triggered the obesity epidemic because you could localize it in time. Mm -hmm. And there were a few things that really changed when obesity rates started showing up. One was this institution of the idea we should all eat low-fat diets, Mm -hmm. which meant carb is heart-healthy diet food. And then uh high fructose corn syrup had been introduced and it had replaced the sugar in Coca Cola mm-hmm. and Pepsi by nineteen eighty four and then total sugar consumption started going up from there because we didn't recognize high fructose corn syrup as sugar. Mm-hmm. So there were people like Michael Pollan and uh John Kritzer who were arguing that high fructose corn syrup had triggered the obesity epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I had this broader perspective that maybe it's all carbs, mm-hmm. and then this awareness, which they didn't, that high fructose corn syrup is just sugar in mm-hmm. a different name. They're the same, mm-hmm. you know, roughly half glucose, half fructose. So that led to the Times Magazine story, and this kind of infamous, maybe Atkins was right, concept. And then I got a big book deal, which such stories will do. And then mm-hmm. I spent five years of my life researching and writing "Good Calories, Bad
1: Calories." And one of the most impressive things to me was how much went research yeah. goes into you know went into writing that book. And so you spent. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? The time that you spent, the amount of research that you read, and people you talked to in order to. Well, so to what
0: happens is. And I actually had lunch. About a year and a half in, I had lunch with my editor. Because originally we had a two-year deadline for okay. the book. And the idea was, you know, if I had taken the New York Times Magazine story and turned it into a book, sort mm-hmm. of the intelligent man's guide to weight loss, mm-hmm. um, it's a massive bestseller. You know? And right. I actually sat down with my editor and I said, I know the book that will sell the best. And my, they, my publisher was Knopf, which is, you know, the top two publishers in New York are okay. Knopf and FSG and my editor, I went with him because he had at already at that point in time edited, I think, eight Pulitzer Prize-winning nonfiction books. Mm-hmm. I mean, just tremendous, amazing editor. Mm-hmm. And so we're having lunch, and I say, you know, I, I know the book that will sell the best. Mm-hmm. It's this sort of intelligent man's guide to weight loss. It's the Times Magazine story stretched out over 200 pages. Yeah. I know the book my friends want me to write, which is that book. Mm-hmm. But as I've been digging into the research, and now the internet had come along, and suddenly you could find all the original papers. Yeah. And when you found the original papers, you could then go through their references and find those papers, and you could go all the way back in time to the 19th century, and you could, you know, when people mentioned books, they used bookstores now had their listings online, you could mm-hmm. find the books and have them delivered for like $12 plus shipping. Mm-hmm. So, I was collecting one of the biggest obesity, probably one of the three or four best private libraries on obesity. I was yeah. you know any book pre nineteen ninety I could buy for seven dollars and have somebody deliver it to me and i it's the equivalent of talking to the graduate students mm-hmm. is let's look at what the references actually say mm-hmm. So I said, as I start exploring this, I find that this idea that carbs are driving weight loss manifests itself in a whole host of different mm-hmm. disciplines. Mm-hmm. And that it it connects to heart disease and diabetes and heart you know uh, cancer and Alzheimer's, and there's this whole revolution. so all these different fields, and mm-hmm. it's like it's imagine you hired me to uh, you know uh, excavate a gold mine that you thought went a quarter mile into a hillside and I'm paid to do a quarter mile but as we dig we find that these veins go deep and they have huge roots and they go back miles and miles and there's nobody's ever and looked at this yeah I just and I'm curious I am inherent I keep asking questions Mm -hmm. until there's no more answers that I haven't heard Mm -hmm. basically when you start running out of questions to ask. It's time, like, you better start writing. (laughs) And my editor said, look, we're Knopf. We're not in the business of making the most, publishing the book that makes the most money. We're in the business of publishing the best books. If you think this Mm -hmm. is a book you have to write, do it.
1: That's amazing.
0: So I just kept doing it and then what happens eventually is you start running out of money no matter how big the advance is, you right. keep doing the research until you start running out of money then you decide you have to start writing because mm-hmm. you need to get a, you get a paycheck when you turn in like half the manuscript okay um but now the pressure is so intense because you're running out of money yeah <laughs> that <laughs> it's even harder up. to write <laughs> so
1: expensive. there's this
0: thing that no matter how big the advance you always end up sort of in debt and nearly (laughs) demented by the time you're done. But eventually, it all came together, and I'm kind of proud of it. It's all worth it. Yeah. And it was just, you know, the internet is what changed all this. So it's interesting, and I was thinking about this. In 1998, Malcolm Gladwell did a piece on, it's called The Pima Paradox Mm -hmm. for the New Yorker. And it was the first really magazine-length discussion of the obesity epidemic Mm -hmm. and obesity. And he said, you know, the conventional wisdom is we do this, and the diet book doctors say we do that. And considering how often the conventional wisdom is wrong in medicine, you should Mm -hmm. really... um, You know, always question it. And then by the end of the book, he decides that that by the end of the article, he decides that conventional wisdom in this place was right. In part because Malcolm is lean and a runner. Mm. And when you're lean and a runner, you assume if everyone runs, they'll be lean too. In part because he read some diet books that I didn't read that really sounded like quackery. Okay, okay since then I've read them and it's like oh my god you that know sounds, these guys yeah. it just sounds like they're snake oil salesmen mm-hmm. I mean Atkins can sound like it's a snake oil salesman
2: mm-hmm.
0: but when you read like five of them and they're all pushing different things and they all you know and then I was just attack I was approaching it through the research itself and right. by the Just two years later, three years later, there were already researchers who were taking Atkins seriously because Malcolm got it right at the cusp of of our awareness of the obesity epidemic. Mm -hmm. But now suddenly other researchers, people are having patients come in who try the Atkins diet and they get healthier and their lipids improve and they go, Jesus, this is contrary to everything I believe. Maybe I should study it. So just in the three years, I had this advantage of academic physicians Mm -hmm. who were saying look this diet just works and Mm -hmm. it makes people healthier and that gave me a different perspective and those three years are like all it takes um and then this you know kind of relentless curiosity Mm -hmm. and And anxiety that you're wrong (laughs) what we talked about (laughs) earlier it's like if you're afraid you're wrong you keep going to look under every questions, stone. Yeah. yeah, to see like okay what, how did I screw up cuz mm-hmm. you know, most people like me are wrong.
1: <laughs> um and so this and what year was the was the book published? It was The 2000... book was 2007. 7. Okay, so it's now been 10 years. Yeah. over 15 years since you started this work. And it's very slow, but even I even I can tell over the last eight years since i started medical school there are changes happening in the conversations that are being had with patients but what are the biggest changes maybe they seem small to you but what are the biggest changes you've noticed um mm-hmm. in nutrition and kind of the conventional wisdom in medicine so
0: um when i started mm-hmm. The healthy diet was a low-fat, low-salt diet. Mm-hmm. That's how it was defined, and then maybe mostly plants. Mm-hmm. You know, just the, we knew that Throw we should be eating there. a lot of Fruit, vegetables. vegetables. You right. know, our mothers always told us to eat vegetables. So, um, nobody talked about the carb content of the diet, mm-hmm. except the diet book doctors. Um, nobody even really talked about the sugar content. Sugar mm-hmm. was just don't eat too much of it. You know, it's all calories. Mm-hmm. So, so just control your calories, watch your weight, right. and you know can keep the fat down so you don't get heart disease. Today, I think almost universally, a, a healthy diet is defined first by it's like low sugar, low refined, don't eat sugar, don't eat refined yeah. grains. That's how we think of a healthy, you know, yeah. white bread. And the low fat thing's kind of gone away and it's been replaced with this idea that you should restrict saturated fat and animal fats mm-hmm. replaced with vegetable oils. And the calorie thing weirdly enough is slowly going away like the cdc on its website used to say obesity is an energy balance disorder Mm -hmm. and the last time i looked i couldn't find that Mm -hmm. which i thought somebody at the cdc is thinking every once in a while um you notice you know changes that wouldn't have happened before this so the new york times they have a column called upshot uh clinical investigators who analyzed sort of the evidence base and they had a piece on orange juice being as bad as sodas. And it's like twenty. Like (laughs) nobody would have ever done that 20 years ago. I tweeted about it. This is a sign of a paradigm shifting. This just would not have happened 20 years ago. And partially I mean the world was going this way without me. I think I accelerated Mm -hmm. it a little. I got to sort of catch a wave that was beginning to build Mm -hmm. and help that wave break. And that wave is breaking. What hasn't changed yet, there's still resistance against so actually let me continue things that have changed i think this idea that carbs are fattening Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is back yeah you know it's part of the conventional wisdom if you talk to people about you know what are you doing to restrict you know get their weight under control they'll say well i'm trying not to eat carbs Mm -hmm. difficult but i'm trying not to do it Mm -hmm. um the idea that they should be eating a high fat Diet restricted in carbs, so keto is spreading. Keto's yes. become a fad. It's really, really yeah. spreading. Yeah, I like to joke that in Silicon Valley, everyone who is in a vegan or microdosing with LSD <laughs> is on a ketogenic diet. You know, who's <laughs> under the age of thirty. One it's of like,
1: those extremes, yeah. Yeah,
0: um, but it's spreading. Mm-hmm. I mean, so fast and so quickly that it makes me a little nervous. Yeah. Um, fasting, intermittent fasting mm-hmm. is spreading. I know Jason Fung mm-hmm. is here, and um, he really you know gets credit for pushing that i mean that has just and i do it i thought it was a fad and i experimented with Mm -hmm. it beginning almost a year ago exactly Mm -hmm. and you know i lost weight i didn't think i had to lose Mm -hmm. i felt better i have more energy i now i'm an intermittent faster i just said i don't eat breakfast yeah but um it's fascinating,
1: because then like you said years ago breakfast was the most important meal of the day right
0: and some people still say that yeah I mean, what's weird is there are people pushing time-restricted feeding. Right. It's just a book came out by a researcher at UC San Diego and mm. a New York Times story. And I, unless I read the New York Times article wrong, they're arguing that breakfast is still the most important. You should just...
1: Restrict your window. <laughs> yeah. Or and eat it's sort of later. Wait, wait, <laughs>
0: wait, wait. Because I stopped eating breakfast and I got healthier. And, I, and that's an N of one, but... I have to talk to those people. We're having an (laughs) ongoing email exchange. Um, So all those things have changed, and they're pretty cool. I mean, this general idea that it's not about Mm -hmm. calories, that obesity isn't an energy balance disorder... I see that changing. It's like there's bloggers who will say, well, nobody ever said that. Mm -hmm. There's these phases of paradigm shifting where first they say that's ridiculous and then they say, you know, we never said that anyway. And then they say, well, that's what we were saying all along. Right. And they've kind of moved to the we never said, we never said it was about calories only.
1: So we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, It's interesting though, too, how you said all these things like keto and... The intermittent fasting they are there in certain pockets in medicine yeah. but they're coming in general from the general population and you know patients are bringing it to their doctors and saying i want to do this or this is what i'm doing and i'm getting healthier well
0: and i think this is you know when i give myself credit in life i think one of the things i did and nina Teicholz did is we helped convince people that yeah. these diets won't kill you mm-hmm. so again 20 years ago the idea was Everybody should eat a low-fat diet. If you want to lose weight, you're low-fat, calorie-restricted. And if you do Atkins, it'll kill you. <laughs> you're going to just drop dead. Right. I mean, any second. So the saturated fat will clog the right. arteries, end of you. So mm-hmm. we've gotten people past that. And the ADA, the American Diabetes mm-hmm. Association, will say, look, these diets are acceptable for weight loss short-term because mm-hmm. we don't know the long-term that's a major shift and so Mm -hmm. now doctors can tell patients and as we see there are probably tens of thousands of doctors who are now prescribing and when your doctor tells you to do it used to be your doctor talked you out of it like but doc I lost 60 pounds you're killing yourself right right but you
1: don't know what it's doing to your heart you know
0: yeah now it's the doctor's telling you know or Mm -hmm. the patient coming to the doctor so you're seeing the disseminating through from the bottom up and when yeah one of the things I did in the course of this I co-founded this nutrition science initiative yeah. thinking we had to change the science because it had to come from the top down mm-hmm. and I still think it has to come from top down also mm-hmm. to change the medical organizations but now having f- failed with NUSI so far <laughs> maybe even done more harm than good um do you see the this bottom up phenomenon this you know the there was this interesting confluence a year ago where hundred Can- over 100 Canadian physis- physicians write a letter to the Huffington Post mm-hmm. saying that they eat low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic about, diets, yeah. and that's what they prescribe to their patients, yeah. and their patients get healthier. Mm-hmm. They, blood sugar comes down, it's controlled, blood pressure comes down, weight comes down, diabetes is resolved, they get them off their medications, mm-hmm. sometimes all of them and this doesn't happen with the conventional therapy and yet the canadian food guide is still pushing low-fat foods and high carb and the u.s news and world report just two months later came out with their diet guides and they rated 40 diets and the low carb ketogenic Mm -hmm. high-fat diets were like 35th through 40th of the 40 they rated and so you've got this interesting phenomenon where the physicians are saying look
1: This is what's working. This
0: works. I take people who have these intractable chronic disorders, whether you think obesity is a disease or a disorder, it's intractable and chronic. People never get better. Type 2 diabetes is, you know, 1 in 11 Americans now, Mm -hmm. and I put them on these diets, and obesity reverses, and type 2 diabetes Mm -hmm. reverses, and hypertension goes away, and... I don't care what you say. I want to make, I want healthy patients. Nobody goes to med school to manage disease for a living. So I think there's definitely this revolution happening that, um, you know, we broke through the gatekeepers. So it used to be the American Medical Association said, this is quackery, you go on these diets, you lose weight and your doctor says you're killing yourself or he sends you to your cardiologist who says you're killing yourself. They just we got around that, yeah. and now people go and they just see that they're 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 healthier. Maybe they're gonna die of heart attacks. You don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, they put them on statins. You don't know either. Right. Well, as far as there.
1: we can tell, all the markers that we have Improve. are pointing in the right direction. Yeah. You Except
0: know? of course LDL, which is right. God's joke. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: but you mentioned nusi, I wanted to ask you a little bit about yeah. that. About why you think it's so far failed, um, but what you you know, why you formed it and what the intentions are and what you guys are working on there.
0: Yeah, so NUSI, the Nutrition Science Initiative, co-founded, I think, 2011, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Peter T. and myself. Um, we had slightly different goals. My primary goal, I just wanted to see some studies funded that could test this energy balance yeah. idea because I thought, you know, there had been so many misconceptions about how we think of obesity and the effect of macronutrients on hormones, on mm-hmm. fat accumulation. And we looked through, we spent a few months looking through every study that ever been done, and they're all basically based on misconceptions. Mm-hmm. And when you begin a study with misconceptions, often they just assumed what was true, that they should have been testing. So mm-hmm. if you assume that obesity is caused by eating too much and you got to get people on calories. you got to restrict calories to lose weight. Then you do the study with only 800 calories because mm-hmm. you've already assumed that they That's got fat it. to begin with by right. eating too much. And so we went through all of these. None of these studies actually properly tested the hypothesis. So I wanted to get these proper tests funded. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems with the field is there are like sort of physicians researchers who buy into low carb diets mm-hmm. and they do studies on them and nobody reads their papers because they're seen as believers right. and so who cares what they write right. who cares what they publish this is a problem i have to talk to with tom Seafried who's here yeah. talking about cancer it's like you've got to get establishment people paying attention mm-hmm. and
1: People who are skeptical doing those same studies.
0: Our thinking was, in order to do that, let's find thoughtful people. And I'd interviewed virtually everyone in the field, so Mm -hmm. I had pretty strong opinions about who was thoughtful and who might be a good scientist if they hadn't been born under this wrong paradigm. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, we funded uh, four studies one of them was a pilot study that just this sort of infamous study that ended up being led by this young researcher at NIH who mm-hmm. had no clinical research experience he was a modeler you know he does computer models okay and um we had all these thoughtful or researchers who were involved but from our perspective they let him we just they their job was to help him become a good scientist mm-hmm. and instead i think we think And I could be wrong. He would argue the opposite, but we think they allowed him to let them be bad scientists. (laughs) Um, I mean, they weren't that great to begin with, because if I'm right, they were just, you know, they just kept generating papers that were sort of reconfirming an incorrect paradigm and they weren't interpreting it they weren't aware that there are other ways to interpret what they were doing and mm-hmm. so anyway this this study got a lot of publicity um the researchers argued that it refuted this alternative hypothesis of obesity that I and others were pushing that mm-hmm. this is a hormonal regulatory disorder and that insulin is driving the connection to diet mm-hmm. and we said but i mean look at the data the data actually supports it and they said well you're interpreting the data incorrectly and we're saying they're interpreting the data through their bias and it was just a mess and you don't yeah. want to be in a position where you're saying that you spend five million dollars of a philanthropist's money to get a bad piece of yes. research yeah. published that's bad publicity but you also don't want to say it's better than it was and of course they're saying that well you're only saying it's bad because it didn't agree with what we believe and we're saying but it did agree with what we believe you just Varied that data right. and it goes back and forth and this happens all the time in science and ideally the answer is do another study. Mm-hmm. Do it better. Mm-hmm. Take, fix the problems. So we did that. We had this other study we funded at Stanford University that always had limited interpretability and okay. um, funny, I found an email that I'd written in 2015 to my colleagues saying when this study is published it's going to be misinterpreted <laughs> and here's why it's going to be misinterpreted. We have to work to make sure that this misinterpretation doesn't happen and we yeah. have to talk to the investigator about it and then February 2018 it's published and it's misinterpreted <laughs> and you know, some people got it right. right. The New York Times, one of their reporters interpreted correctly and then this other upshot column misinterpreted it because they just <clears throat> people it's, it's difficult right. this whole thing is right. not um i just was clearly naive when i started we have two more studies that are in review mm-hmm. at the moment mm-hmm. um and uh you know i can't really talk about them yeah. they'll make nussie less of a cock up and then there are other studies that I'm trying to get funded. NUSI kind of in suspended animation, that we have medical research organization status, and we have some money left over that mm-hmm. I'd like to spend on studies. But at the moment, the whole organization is, you know, it's uh, me working for free mm-hmm. as a hobby in Oakland, and then right. a, a, <laughs> a science director in Philadelphia who gets you know, paid weekly actually to, to, to function. And then okay. we have a researcher and an accountant who get paid you know, on a freelance basis. Mm-hmm. So.
1: so more challenges than anticipated with, well, but, but a lot of that I think you talked about in your, or maybe at least referenced in your talk here about yeah. some of the challenges with doing this research today and with the way science is structured today. Um, and I think you did a good job of, of contrasting you know, even even in the field of physics, how things are a little bit different or how yeah. things were, you know, decades ago when people were really focused on studying one problem and dedicated to finding the answer to that.
0: Well, and this is the thing, um, and this is what we wish they would do in obesity. Yeah. So ideally, in an ideal world, the obesity community would say, you yeah, know, we've got these epidemics, obesity's, mm-hmm. you know, gone from... 12% of the population in 1960 to almost 40% today and mm-hmm. diabetes went from you know 1% to 10% of the population and we've completely failed mm-hmm. to curb these epidemics actually Tom Seafried said something very similar about similar, cancer yeah. look you've got cancer deaths per day have been going up year by year in the United States, and they're going up faster than Mm -hmm. the growth of the population, Mm -hmm. and that tells you your approach has failed and you don't really have to know anything else, although Mm -hmm. it's always a little more complicated. Um, But in obesity and diabetes, it's not. I mean, if you just had to live through this period to know that the world looks different today than it is, and doctors' waiting rooms are different today than they were. Um, So the assumption is we understand the cause of the disease. Hey, we know what causes this. People eat too much, dude. It's like and there's too much good-tasting food available, and we don't exercise enough, and so um, we don't have to do anything more. Mm -hmm. And our argument has always been, look, when you've got an epidemic out of control and you you completely and utterly fail to curb it, actually a year ago the director general of the World Health Organization gave – her prediction for the likelihood that they would begin to curb this epidemic, not Mm -hmm. that they would reverse it, but that they would begin (laughs) to curb it. (laughs) And her prediction was 0% chance. Wow. That So under those circumstances, a reasonable thing to ask would be maybe we don't understand the disease. Right. You know, if cigarette lung cancer cases were, or HIV cases had just continued to climb from the 1980s, you'd say to yourself, you know, we thought we understood the cause of AIDS. We were pretty sure it was the HIV virus, Mm -hmm. but it's now 40 years later and and 40% of the population has AIDS. (laughs) Maybe it's not HIV and maybe it's not sexually transmitted, but clearly there's something we better be checking into because we fed, you know, if 50 years, the 1965, the surgeon general puts out a report on, on, you know smoking and lung cancer and we say look it smoking causes lung cancer and 50 years later 40% of the population's dying from lung cancer you would say maybe it's not yeah. cigarettes dude <laughs> let's just look into it i'm not right. saying it isn't but let's there's some significant out. possibility we don't understand what's happening with disease let's figure it out mm-hmm. But what's happened in the U.S. with obesity and diabetes, our belief is so profound that obesity is just caused by taking in more calories and we expand That's mm-hmm. supposedly some law of nature, like it's the law of physics, and right. the laws of physics don't say anything about the cause of obesity. All they say is the laws of physics can't be broken, but mm-hmm. they say nothing about the cause. And then, But what we've done, beginning post-World War II in the U.S., the way research is funded, mm-hmm is you just give a lot of small grants to as many people as possible Mm -hmm. so they're called r01 grants two and a half million dollars over five years it's five hundred thousand dollars a year to do research and pay your lab technicians and you know give a overhead to university so all you could do is approach with small problems you got to do rodent research because nobody can afford human research so you figure out what causes obesity and rats And then you assume that that's true for humans. I mean, it's crazy. And so what you end up with is this system where people say, well, these are multifactorial complex problems. It's a little bit of this. It's a little bit of that. It's a little bit of everything that we've been giving money to. Mm -hmm. And nobody's saying, wait a minute. Let's take a step back. Let's go to examine our fundamental beliefs. Mm -hmm. Is this an energy balance disorder? 'Cause here we have this guy arguing pretty compellingly that it's a hormonal dis you know, and mm-hmm. like if you grew up with a sibling who was obese, or your mother had a hysterectomy and became obese, or your mother went through menopause, became obese, or you know, you were the one who was obese, you pretty damn clear there are hormones involved. In mm-hmm. fact, if you watched went through high school and watched members of the opposite sex develop differently than you and accumulate yeah. fat or not accumulate fat differently than you. It's pretty clear that hormones are playing a role in fat accumulation. Yeah. Maybe this is a hormonal thing, just like obese people used to claim. Maybe they do really get fat easier than lean people do. So let's examine that. And then you'd have the, some government committee say, look, here are these two competing hypotheses. We find this alternative hypothesis compelling enough that we have to test Mm -hmm. it and explore the possibility that this is a way to look at it. That's Mm -hmm. what you're trying to achieve. And hopefully they're all open-minded and they're smart scientists, maybe even pull scientists from other fields who don't come with these paradigms attached. And then you figure out how to do the experiments to do it right. And you have this kind of Manhattan Project approach to not building bombs, but figuring out what we don't know. You know, in the 1980s, when AIDS was new, we did a really good job mm-hmm. of approaching it without preconceptions mm-hmm. so we could identify what the cause was. Had we decided in 1980, You know, now, if you were doing it, you've got all these people who are so programmed. It's HIV. I mean, it is HIV. Mm-hmm. But assuming it wasn't, you'd have a real... So anyway, that's what I think you need to do. Yeah. The problem is we're still funding, you know... 10,000 researchers to publish 400 papers mm-hmm. per week on obesity it's like this huge mm-hmm. noise generating machine
1: right you showed that graph in your talk of the number of papers yeah. on obesity and it's just it is and there's no no one can keep up with reading that let alone draw any kind of conclusions from yeah.
0: well and the other problem is research. so let's say one of the newsi papers mm-hmm. really one of our studies really, Comes up with very compelling evidence Mm -hmm. that something we don't think is true is. Mm -hmm. So, so we've got 400 papers being published each week on the subject of obesity. According to, if you search PubMed with obesity Obesity. as a term, um, I'd say there's 10 weeks of papers in print. Wow. That's 4,000 papers. So now, today, your study's published, gets in the New York Times tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It's big news. There's 4,000 papers coming down the pipeline that don't even know this finding exists. Right. It's like a tidal wave. Oh, my gosh. Or, you know, again, using the noise thing. It's like a rock concert worth of noise to drown out the sound of your soprano. Right.
1: Right. We need to get back to quality over quantity.
0: Yeah. And then there's not just those 4,000 papers. There's probably another 10 weeks of papers that are being written up without any awareness that they're thinking of obesity should change. It's another two years of experiments that are in the works. Mm. I mean, it's just, it's it's, it's a tsunami it's like of, yeah. and it's, you, you light this little match and it's supposed to light the darkness. <laughs> and it just, <laughs> phew, so, on the other hand, the world is full of obese and diabetic people who don't yeah. want to be obese and diabetic. And then their doctors are now going to say, why don't you try this diet? And if you commit to it, it'll make you healthy. And people mm-hmm. are finding out that it does, so. I'm more that's optimistic today that the bottom-up approach is going to work and the top, more pessimistic right. about top-down. I
1: think we're all seeing that. And the way yeah. the information is transferred now, and like you said, with the internet and with social media and people, being able to share with their their communities, their successes, I think is, that's how it's, it's being spread. So. And that's,
0: yeah, and again, it's... Um, the diabetes story is really interesting. And what companies like Verta Health are doing in yes. San Francisco. So they go after type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. And the idea is to go after payers and providers mm-hmm. and employers. To say, look, we can save you money. Because right. we can take your type 2 diabetics and we can get them off their drugs. So mm-hmm. you pay us $2,000 a year instead of spending $8,000 a year on drugs. Yep. And you only have to do it if we succeed you've got nothing Sounds to lose. Like a s- good deal. Suddenly people see they can make money. Right. They can save money by making their patients or their employees healthy. Everybody gains except the sugar industry and right. the pharmaceutical industry. Right. But I think
1: It's happening. We can it is live with happening. That, Yeah. So through all of this, all of this research, um, how has your own diet changed over the years and how, how do you eat now?
0: Okay, so I first did Atkins as an experiment. So in the 90s, I'm living on this low-fat diet like everyone else. And in fact, I'm living in Los Angeles, so it's probably a lower-fat diet. I might have been close to, I don't know, 20% fat. The only place I was getting fat in my diet might have been from these skinless chicken breasts. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I ate a piece of red meat in the 90s. (laughs) Uh, I'm gaining two pounds a year. Mm -hmm. And then I... So I go from like 212, which was my boxing mm-hmm. weight, to 230. I'm working out an hour a day. I seem to Following be in good shape. Following all advice, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think it's crucial to actually, it's funny, in this piece that Malcolm Gladwell wrote and, the Pima Paradox, he talks about this phenomenon where diet book doctors always say they were getting fat, and they couldn't stop it, and they went looking yeah. for a cure, and they found this thing to do, and then lo and behold, they magically lost weight, and they lost weight without even being hungry, and then they told their patients to do mm-hmm. it, and he said all the diet books have the same theme, Sorry, and they yeah. all do. And the reason they do is because if you're lean and healthy and you run marathons, you don't.
1: you don't look for it
0: you don't look for any solution. And you think if everyone did what you did, but if you're not, if you're one of those of us who are just getting heavier, Mm -hmm. you explore fad diets. That's what you do. And if you find one that works, it's like, Jesus, I did this. So I had actually an economist. I was working on this soft science piece for the journal Science, Mm -hmm. the dietary fat piece. And I was also writing a, article for uh discover magazine on the economics of the mathematics of the stock market mm-hmm. and i was interviewing this uh economist at mit who ran the laboratory of financial engineering at mit and we started talking about the dietary fat science and he said oh if you're doing a story on dietary fat you have to try atkins he said his so here it is spreading from individual, yes. to individual. he said yes. his colleague at warden he co-authors papers with the professor warden The warden guy has a father who lost 200 pounds on atkins so he went on it mm-hmm. at mit and he's asian-american he said i basically gave up white rice, rice. i lost 40 yeah. pounds so i go back to california and i try it mm-hmm. and i'm unmarried i don't have kids my mother has passed away and my father won't care that much mm-hmm. um if I give myself a heart attack, it's like, you know, <laughs> these things happen. It's, so I experiment and I'm eating eggs and bacon and sausage for breakfast and mm-hmm. steaks for lunch and steaks for dinner <laughs> and green salads, a lot of vegetables. Yeah. Cause you end up telling, when you live in LA and your writer, you eat out every meal mm-hmm. <laughs> and you date waitresses. That's like the writer life. Okay. Um, um, so you tell the waiter the waitress you know hold the potatoes give me a double order of broccoli Vegetables, or yeah. give me a double order of salad breakfast is hold the toast hold the potatoes maybe give me some tomato slices and, yeah um and I'm waiting for my heart to blow up and while I'm waiting I lose 25 pounds effortlessly yeah. like it's like you walk down the street and the calories the weight just it's falls off so much <laughs> so that so I was working out an hour a day and it was you know I'm running I'm rollerblading from Venice up to Malibu and back. I'm doing these famous steps in Santa Monica Canyon. I couldn't Mm -hmm. lift weights because I bulk up so easily. Mm -hmm. And it's like why bother doing all that now? I was doing it Mm because I thought if I burned enough calories I didn't have to starve myself. And now I'm losing weight effortlessly. Um, I don't why do the running. I'm destroying my knees Mm -hmm. which are now destroyed. Um, I actually went back to doing resistance training because now mm-hmm. i could lift weights and not blow up like a balloon right. and it was, it was a fascinating phenomena. Mm-hmm. i mean it's like and i've said this to research you have to understand this you spend your whole life sort of cycling in and out of diets i was a football player i'm the kind of guy who gains weight easily yeah. it's like I know what it's like to have to lose weight and be hungry all the time, mm-hmm. and to eat small portions of food, and now I'm eating enormous portions, and I'm losing weight. It's like it's a different phenomena, mm-hmm. trust me. Mm-hmm. And despite all of this, I, of course, fell off the diet and gained the weight back. Mm-hmm. I just started eating desserts after every meal, which might have been sure. my body's way of trying to. Bring the carbs right. back. And there were some great desserts at the restaurants I, I went to in L.A. I
1: don't doubt that.
0: Hal's on Abbott Kinney Boulevard made a bread pudding. <laughs> that I still, you know, will be my last meal if I don't have, you know, if I can think about yeah. it. Um, anyway, then I, about a year later, after my article came out in the Times Magazine, mm-hmm. I went back. And, um, you know, it just worked. It's like, mm-hmm. if I don't eat starches and sugars mm-hmm. and grains, I can maintain a relative healthy weight mm-hmm. and look good and feel good mm-hmm. and eat pretty much as much food as i want yeah there's no sense of food restriction so get back to the year ago i said i started intermittent fasting so i don't eat breakfast and even that's interesting because i'm not hungry in the morning yeah. so i mean it's skin it's you know it's almost 12 30 now i haven't eaten since mm-hmm. dinner last night mm-hmm. um it wasn't a Particularly large dinner, mm-hmm. but I'm just not hungry. It's I, my body that is it's perfectly happy to live off the fat I stored yesterday right. while I ate. Um, I uh, when I do get around to eating, I tend to eat pretty much constantly from one o'clock to seven o'clock. Yeah. So I'm constantly eating mm-hmm. um, salt salted roasted almonds or hundred percent Mm -hmm. chocolate or carry gold butter straight or and it doesn't seem there's no sense of restriction there's Mm -hmm. never any time when i'm hungry Mm -hmm. there's never any time where i'm not eating large portions of food Mm -hmm. um it's an entirely different phenomenon it's as though my body without carbs and now with the intermittent mm-hmm. fasting works like my lean friends' bodies work all the time. Yeah. It just, you take away the carbs, mm-hmm. we're now kind of similar people. Mm-hmm. So it also fed my thinking that one of the, and it's something I'm going to say in my next book and hammer on, this idea that obesity is caused by consuming too many calories fundamentally is built on the assumption that lean people and We'll call them pre obese people, Mm -hmm. are identical, except that the pre obese people can't balance their intake with their expenditure. Mm -hmm. So they lack willpower, or they don't care, or they lack, you know. But other than that, they're identical. And one of the things I want to do is ask um, the researchers if this is how, like, let's say you have a lean person who's going to go on to be lean and a lean person who's going to go on to be obese, what Mm -hmm. would you look for? to predict which of the two is going to become obese. What's the difference between right. them? Because I think the only thing they could say is, well, clearly the one who's going to become obese is going to eat too much. Yeah, so when there's this, the insulin. This, yeah, there's this basic idea that it's just about the, those yeah, of about us who become fat yeah. are we're like lean people, but we eat too much. Right. And so the idea then is in order for us to be healthy, we should eat just like lean people, just less of it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So if they eat fruits and vegetables and pulses and beans Mm -hmm. and vegetable oils, we should eat fruits and pulses and... You know, if they eat a lot of uh, whole grains, we should eat whole grains. And the counter-argument is, dude, we're not. Mm -hmm. You know, like my brother who at his peak as an athlete he was six foot five and couldn't get above 195 and i had like you could see every vein in his body (laughs) he was a rower okay and i was like freud said anatomy is destiny i was six two and could get up to 240 i played football yeah my brother was a good football player but he couldn't get over 190 (laughs) You know, he was a better football player than I was in high school, but Mm -hmm. he couldn't get over 190. I could bulk up to 240 so I can play college ball. I was Mm -hmm. shorter and chunkier our whole lives. I was always shorter and chunkier. I am not, physiologically, we respond to food differently. Mm -hmm. My body wants to partition fuel differently. Mm -hmm. You know, our musculature isn't that different. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was weird. We tended to wear the same jacket mm-hmm. size but my body stores fat and his body does not. Mm. And so foods that he can eat mm-hmm. are not foods that I can eat because we have different hormonal responses. That's mm-hmm. the hypothesis. And you know, it's a simple one. It says like I can't tolerate carbs. If I don't want to be fat, don't eat carbs. It's not that hard. Right. It's like uh, this woman at Dell Height who I've uh is quite clever. She's it's just not that difficult. It's like just meat, green vegetables. Yeah. You know, it's like, and, and Greg like Glassman's, says, and you know, meat, vegetables, yeah. Yeah. What is it? Mut- some meat, fruit, vegetables. little
1: starch and no sugar. Yeah.
0: And I, the only thing I would change it would make the some fruit, some berries. Mm, I like that too. Or yeah. some fruit, <laughs> no ba- some fruit no after your workout <laughs> yeah. when it's yeah. being used just to, you know, right. restock glycogen right. and, uh, and some of us, you know, if you're really predisposed, and some people are. I mean, I have a mm-hmm. friend now when he was 18 years old, weighed 400 pounds. Yeah. I mean, he was different than I am. He's still different than I am. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be a much tougher battle for him his whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, But he knows how to fight it because it's not about starving right. himself.
1: And do you think those differences, are they genetic, environmental, epigenetic? How do you h- How do we figure out which is it just based on figure out what works or how do we figure out which people need to be well, you more know. carb-restricted just you knowing know. based oh, yeah. on what I mean, works it's like yeah
0: that's, and so on l- some level ultimately it comes down to self-experimentation right. like I when I started on uh, Atkins I was 230 I went down to 205 yep. at two, I'm six two. at 205 my wife said I looked emaciated mm-hmm. she didn't like she said life I, I, was, I look emaciated I'm 30 pounds heavier than anyone <laughs> you know and then I drifted slowly up to like 220 to 225, which, mm-hmm. you know, I'm now in my 50s. It's just like that's kind of my, where my body settles yeah. with very few carbs. Add the intermittent fasting, I'm back down at 210. Mm-hmm. And I don't look emaciated. Mm-hmm. I can't explain it. But I would have been perfectly happy staying between 220 and 225, mm-hmm. um, but I experimented. Mm-hmm. You that's know, if I'm... A, yeah. They had a patient. I'm a journalist I can't have patients but if I know someone who's 300 pounds and they give up carbs and they get to 200 but they're a woman they would prefer to be 150 now maybe they'll never get to 150 maybe mm-hmm. 200 is the best they can do mm-hmm. had they never eaten carbs in their life they may, may never have gotten heavier than 150 to begin with mm-hmm. you know these are questions you can't answer like right. if their mothers had not done what their mothers right. did because there are epigenetic effects right. so these are Effects, I think of them as intrauterine effects. Mm -hmm. While the baby's in the womb, if the mother's obese or diabetic or pre diabetic or gestationally diabetic, that Mm -hmm. baby's going to see a high blood sugar environment Mm -hmm. and it's going to respond by developing more insulin secreting cells. Mm -hmm. And it's likely to then, you know, and these studies were done in the native, the Pima, the Native American tribe, and it's very clear those kids are at increased risk of obesity and diabetes. Mm -hmm. It's easier for them. So if your parents are, your mother particularly, mm-hmm. is obese or diabetic, I mean...
1: That's, you have a, a you're, lot you're, you're, more to work against, yeah.
0: Yeah, and if she just gained a lot of weight mm-hmm. in pregnancy, mm-hmm. you know, my my generation, a lot of the women, um, there was this, I don't know what happened, well I do know on some level they were living on like high carb high sugar f- right. foods because the doctors thought it was good for them and they gained like 40 50 pounds during pregnancy yeah Whereas my mother probably gained 18 or something mm-hmm. that was the advice back then so you know there's a lot of fixing that has to be done all sort of up and down the you know from pregnancy onward right um but clearly some people are They're genetically predisposed. They're biologically, whether it's, you know, and then they're programmed in the womb Mm -hmm. by the mother's blood sugar insulin environment to be predisposed. And they're going to have a much harder time. And when they have kids, their kids are going to be fatter and more diabetic still unless we uh, approach this problem in pregnancy.
1: Right. Um, On that note, when you mentioned fruit after workouts, how do you, I'm assuming your diet is ketogenic based on what you're telling me or do you, is that something that you measure or that you are, have any awareness of?
0: I do not measure. Okay. i never measured ketones. Okay. Um, <clears throat> my wife has a very sensitive sense of smell. So mm-hmm. she'll also often tell me I'm in ketosis <laughs> so and are. just like go eat yeah. something or yeah. have a piece of fruit or something and get out of right. it. That's her thinking. Um, it's, I don't know actually how much of a role ketones play. play. So it's one of the play. things I did last fall is I interviewed 100 plus physicians and mm-hmm. dietitians who prescribe these diets. Mm-hmm. And almost I've, I've, very few of them said they really care if their patients are in ketosis and mm-hmm. they don't aim for ketosis. They just say, get rid of these carbs. Mm-hmm. Eat this as much as you want. And then if they find that they're not losing weight or they're plateauing mm-hmm. with a lot of fat, then they'll use you know, ketone measurements as a way to assess whether or not the patient is complying right. with the diet. Are they right. really following it? Because if they're in ketosis and not losing weight, that's a different issue than... If they're not in ketosis and not losing weight, then we could see what happens if we could right. get their, clean up their diet and get them into ketosis. Right. Ketosis is a sign that you're mobilizing fat and oxidizing it. Also, that you have a lot of fat in your diet, um, so my thinking on that is pretty simplistic and just you know these carbs are fattening, don't eat them. Mm-hmm. Not green leafy vegetables, but starches, starches, grains, yeah. sugars. And then um, what
1: about for athletes or like we're talking about here in in people who are doing CrossFit, who are doing a variety of endurance and power types of exercise do you think that there's a role for more carbohydrates there in relation to exercise and i
0: suspect there is this Mm -hmm. is not my area of expertise Mm -hmm. but you could think of it it's certainly like sugar it's a kind of performance enhancing drug yeah um you know when my kids go to college i'm not going to deter them from having a coca-cola before an exam because Mm -hmm. if they can sit still i'm pretty confident that it will enhance their performance (laughs) um better than Ritalin, which all their friends will be doing, which (laughs) is already enhancing their performance. Um, so uh, yeah, it's quite possible. And again, I think self-experimentation is necessary. A lot of people arguing that, you know, once you're in ketosis, um, and you're burning ketones and you've got this free sort of uh, very flexible fuel Mm -hmm. supply that, that, enhances some athletic performance Mm -hmm. like i'm certainly stronger than i used to be Mm -hmm. i mean it's weird i'm 62 i'm stronger than i was i could do more pull-ups than i could when i was playing football working out two hours a day although i'm also 30 pounds lighter lighter. yeah um but you know so i i don't buy that it, it it impacts even if it impacts muscle mass i don't by that it impacts strength because I can see that I just personally got stronger mm-hmm. the fewer carbs I consume. Um, but I'm not doing these other exercises, mm-hmm. so and it, they're all I imagine all have particular stresses and challenges, mm-hmm. and some people will find that they do better with carbs or even with sugar, and mm-hmm. some people won't, and then it's it's a trade-off. Mm-hmm. I don't think the goal in life should just be to live as long as humanly possible. Right. You know, we're trading off. to enjoy our time while yeah, we're here too. exactly. Right? So Very it's true. one thing. I do think that many people are obese and diabetic would be happier if they weren't. Right. Even if they have to go through a period like when I I'm happier not smoking cigarettes than I was smoking them. Even though getting to be a non-smoker was a pretty miserable experience and took me years. Right. And I mean, you know, so I think these are some of the issues we confront. Mm-hmm. I recently said, Christopher Gardner did this study that Nussie funded at Stanford where he compared people on what he called a healthy low-carb diet, Mm -hmm. which is no sugars and refined grains and vegetable oils and then low-carb, higher fat, to a healthy low-fat diet, which is no sugars, no refined grains, no vegetable oils, and lower fat. Okay. So... It was a flawed study to begin with because both trials, you're removing sugar and refined grains, which are what we're arguing is the cause, the fundamental cause of the excess weight. Um, So I met this woman uh, who, a professional woman, Stanford graduate, who was, uh, uh, she was telling me she was a subject in the trial Mm -hmm. and she's obese, so she's 240 pounds, maybe 5'7". Um, And she showed me her weight loss, and uh, she was in the low carb arm. So Mm -hmm. for three months, she lost 30 pounds in the first three months on a low carb diet, which is pretty spectacular—10 pounds a month, two and a half pounds a week. Yeah. Um, And then uh, they said, "Look, if you really miss any carbs, we urge you to add them back, because we don't want you to fall off the (laughs) diet." So not a lot, but a little. So, So you know, you stay in the study. So she added three months. She added berries back. Okay. And she lost five pounds in the next three months. Wow. And then she added fruit back and never lost another pound. Interesting. So the investigator's idea was, we don't want people to drop out of the study. Mm-hmm. So if they're really missing carbs, they're going to drop out. Nobody could sustain a ketogenic diet. That's mm-hmm. too difficult. So let's let them eat. As soon as she added the berries back, her weight loss effectively stopped. Interesting. And I've read this in the literature yeah. and, and, you know, and I mentioned it. And, good calories, bad calories. This clinician at DuPont in uh, Delaware in the 50s saying he had one executive who lost 50 pounds effortlessly on a low-carb diet. And if he added a single, a single apple a day, would stop his weight loss. Huh. So with this woman, she missed her berries. Mm-hmm. But what I said to her is it?" difficult conversation to have. Let's imagine you never added the berries back and instead of plateauing at 205 you plateaued at 140. Mm -hmm. She hadn't been 140 since she was like 12. Mm -hmm. Maybe you wouldn't miss the berries. (laughs) And maybe your body changes its physiological state. The berries could be part of a sort of insulin related carb craving and when you're living on fat and you're freely burning your own fat maybe you won't even crave the berries. When I was Eating a low-fat diet, my, my um, luxury in life as a struggling journalist mm-hmm. was fresh orange juice. Mm-hmm. Um, fresh squeezed, sure. you had to pay like twice as much and only lasted a couple of days. And right. I thought the orange juice was God's way of getting the taste of the night out of your mouth. <laughs> and then when I tried to act as, as, as an experiment, the orange juice was the hardest thing to give up. Yeah. I mean, it was just craving this mm-hmm. orange juice. And just I realized that it's all about the sugar. Today I c- couldn't imagine having a glass of orange juice any more mm-hmm. than I could imagine smoking a cigarette. I mean, I c- literally—it's like, why would why I would just I do that? Yeah. So uh, my body has changed, mm-hmm. and my fuel supply has changed. I now live on—I burn fat and ketones, mm-hmm. some ketones, mm-hmm. you know, for fuel. Yeah. Um, I don't need that carbs, and my liver doesn't particularly want to deal with the fructose. So, this could happen to heart too, but if you decide that you miss the berries, um, you never get the chance get to chance. see what's possible and then to make an informed decision about what the risks, you know, what, what you really, how you want to live. Right. Um, so, one of the ideas and that these doctors told me and that I want to communicate in my book is sort of how, you know if you commit Mm -hmm. and you really then you get to find out what's possible Mm -hmm. like what can your body be how can you feel and then you can decide look okay i'm 100 pounds lighter but i just i really miss berries yeah yeah. i mean i gave up coffee for a year Mm -hmm. a couple years ago and at the end of a year i mean i didn't have all caffeine no tea no decaf no yeah the end of a year i said this isn't worth it yeah you know, it just isn't life. I there's no reason to get out of bed without yeah. a cup of coffee. To look I did the same thing. It. I only
1: did it. I've only done it for a few months, but I felt better. I don't. You know, I felt like I didn't feel as my energy was more even yeah. throughout the day. All those things, all these benefits. But I love that cup of coffee in the morning. You know what's like, funny yeah, is perfect. when I
0: did it when I was younger, mm-hmm. I felt better. In fact, I loved the feeling of waking up refreshed right. and awake, right. and not sort of dragging yourself to the kitchen and pushing the button and staring at the machine right. until you could get your drug. Um, but when I was older and did it, I, never, I never got to that point. And I expected to, mm-hmm. and I th- didn't think it would end, but I said, I'm going to do it for a and like on day 366, <laughs>
1: you were ready that, that cup coffee. of coffee
0: was the best cup of coffee I ever had in my life. I bet it was. So I get it. Yeah. I understand. And I'm probably healthier without the coffee. I don't know.
1: Yeah.
0: I understand. But I got to make that decision.
1: And again, it's that personal experimentation and how yeah. all of us are a little bit different. And we have to go down. You know, you have to put that investment to figure out for yourself. Yeah. But yeah, I know we need to wrap up. So I have a couple of quick questions that I ask everyone on the podcast At the end, the first one is three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health.
0: Okay. I don't eat sweets. Yep. I'm... You know, it's funny. I have mixed feelings about exercise. I mean, I love it and I do it, mm-hmm. but I'm also getting my knee replaced in a month. Oh. I have back issues. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't, I, well, you know, I look good. History, and I history think. of
1: football and yeah, it's true. It's what's the most healthy form of exercise over the course of your life.
0: Yeah, so it's sort of, you know, I'd probably be better off if I was, when I did do it, I took a little easier. Um, So I'm going to say, yeah, that basically not eating sweets and probably not eating grains and starches Mm -hmm. and even now the intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. Although I could add, you know, uh, having a wonderful family and, you know. That's important too. um, Those things, I'm sure. And we just got a dog. And if the dog would stop, would get, you know, actually be as house-trained yeah. as we thought he was. <laughs> I'm sure that would improve my health as definitely,
1: well. Definitely. Definitely. So, what type of dog did you get?
0: A uh, rescue okay. from Korea. Oh, so, wow. That's uh,
1: very cool. We're, that's our next thing. We keep talking about it, but... Just uh, don't, don't fool yourself like
0: we did into thinking that they're house-trained easy, when they're not. Yeah. <laughs> there was a room that we didn't go into all that much, but apparently he did. So, oh, well. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was my... A nice surprise. Life experience the other day, yeah. surprise.
1: All right, next question is, what is one thing that you're working on or that you think would have a big impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it?
0: That I'm working on.
1: Or an experiment Uh, you're trying.
0: Well, again, I'm having my knee replaced next month. So this, my right leg hasn't had, knee hasn't had cartilage since 1974. So it is, you know, bone on bone, and yeah. that means. And I'm a big guy, so I haven't been able to run really for yeah. ten years. I, you know, and I have back issues, which are probably because I can't walk, straighten this yeah. leg, so I walk. So it could be that. Knock on wood. That yeah, day, hopefully
1: we'll see you running you know, and doing. Because other kinds than that, I mean,
0: exactly we. That. I live a pretty healthy lifestyle, so it's sort of. um, Yeah. Yeah okay Uh, well good oh and maybe I could spend more time with my kids sure having mentioned the family yeah probably be healthy for all all, of us
1: yeah we can all spend more time with our families I think last question is what does a healthy life look like to you
0: uh what does a healthy life look I mean again it's uh the you're lean and healthy which means if you have to do that by eating restricting carbs and eating fat Mm -hmm. then that's what it is mm-hmm. it's certainly minus processed foods and sweets mm-hmm. and, um, other you Something know addictive it, substances right. within reason I love it that's a tough question that's a that's it a because comp- it it's go- not nearly as simple as one would think
1: people take it in a lot of different directions so it's yeah. interesting to hear where it goes yeah. but thank you so much for sitting down with me this has been really great well thank I you appreciate
0: it it's been fun <laughs>
1: Hey there. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I loved hearing Gary talk, especially about his own personal nutrition journey in this episode. I think there's nothing more powerful than self-experimentation in your own N of one experimental process. Now we want to know what types of diets have you personally experimented with? Which way of eating allows you to feel at your best? Let us know on social media using hashtag pursuing health. To make sure you never miss an episode and to receive exclusive content from me, head to my website, juliefouché.com, and subscribe to my email list. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and consider giving the podcast a five-star rating on iTunes. Also, don't forget to share your stories. If you or someone you know has used lifestyle to overcome a serious health challenge, please send me an email at info at i I'll choose some of these inspiring stories to share here on future episodes. Don't forget you can train with me through Beyond the Whiteboard by visiting trainwithjuliefouche.com. Thank you again so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Pursuing Health. This episode is brought to you by a company that's made my life significantly easier, and that's Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online marketplace, and they're on a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone. It allows you to shop for thousands of the best-selling non-GMO foods and natural products, always at 25 to 50% below retail prices. But as a Pursuing Health listener, you'll receive an additional 25% off your first purchase, plus a free 30-day trial if you visit www.thrivemarket.com forward slash ph. My husband, Danny, and I have been ordering from Thrive Market for years, and it's helped us to maximize our efficiency with grocery shopping and meal prep in the midst of our busy schedules through medical training. Using Thrive Market, we can shop for all of our staple grocery items, things like nut butters, cooking oils, snacks, dressings, coffee and tea, even personal care products, eco-friendly cleaning supplies, and non-toxic beauty products. We know that they're coming from a curated list of products we can trust. Whether you're looking for paleo, vegan, ketogenic, gluten-free, non-GMO, sustainably farmed, fair trade certified, or any of 80 plus other types of products, you can easily find them by filtering on Thrive Market's platform. And they're all at prices 25 to 50% below retail. Even better, these items are shipped straight to your doorstep, so you never have to worry about the time or hassle of grocery shopping. Here's a few other reasons to love Thrive Market. First, they're the very first company in the country to go 100% zero waste. All of their packaging, boxes, and inserts are made from recycled paper and are recyclable themselves. They're the largest retailer in the country that sells exclusively non-GMO groceries, and more than 70% of the Thrive Market catalog cannot be found on Amazon. It provides greater access to high-quality products. at prices comparable to conventional products in supermarkets. This helps to decrease the barriers to healthy living for everyone. We also have the opportunity to vote with our forks every single day to change our food environment in this country, and Thrive Market can help us do so by supporting companies that are also working towards this mission and producing high-quality, healthy, and sustainable foods. So that's why I love Thrive. Thrive's mission again is to make healthy living easy and approachable to everyone, and this aligns perfectly with my own personal mission and that of pursuing health. Because it's been such a lifesaver for me, I wanted to share the benefits of Thrive Market with all of you, and they've responded with an amazing offer. So, once again, head to thrivemarket.com forward slash ph to receive 25% off your first purchase plus a free 30 day trial. Again, This is on top of their already 25 to 50% below retail prices. Why not try it out and do your grocery shopping from home this week? I hope you can take advantage of this offer and enjoy their service as much as I have. Once again, head to thrivemarket.com forward slash ph to learn more. No discount code necessary. Just shop around and the discount will be applied at checkout. This episode is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox delivers 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, and heritage-breed pork directly to your doorstep. Now, I think meat can have a place in a well-rounded diet, but there is a huge, huge difference when it comes to animals raised in feedlots that are fed primarily corn and soy and routinely given growth hormones and antibiotics, and those that are responsibly raised fed their natural diet and never given growth hormones or antibiotics. ButcherBox gives me some peace of mind, knowing that I can trust my meat is the highest quality out there and that it will taste amazing. They allow you to order curated or custom boxes of meat, and they always come with recipe ideas for you to explore. My husband, Danny, and I are super excited about firing up our backyard grill this summer to enjoy our ButcherBox selections with tons of vegetables from our local CSA. And you can join us. ButcherBox is extending an awesome offer to you for listening to Pursuing Health. Just head to butcherbox.com forward slash Julie for $20 off your order, plus a free order of their delicious bacon. Again, that's butcherbox.com forward slash Julie. Hope you can check it out and that it makes your life a little bit easier just as it has done for us.